Welcome to this week's sermon podcast from Hawkwood Baptist Church in Calgary, Alberta. You can find out more about our church at hawkwood.ca. Now, here is Pastor Schaefer Parker with this week's message. I do want to talk to you about the gospel as presented in the Old Testament, but more than anything, I hope to help you fall in love with the idea that the whole Bible contains one central message, all the way from Genesis to Revelation, or as the old country preacher that I grew up under used to say, from generations to revolutions. But um, anyway, I hope to help you fall in love with the idea that the whole Bible contains one central message, and that that message is summed up by Peter as he stood before the Jewish leadership in Jerusalem, uh, just a few months after the Lord was crucified, just a few months after he had ascended to heaven, the Holy Spirit had come down. And now in Acts chapter 4, we find Peter standing before the Sanhedrin court, and this is what he said. This Jesus is the stone rejected by you builders, which has become the cornerstone. That's interesting. Some of the text seems to be missing, but that's okay. This Jesus is the stone rejected by you builders, which has become the cornerstone. That The stuff you see behind me that's in bold print, the stone rejected by you builders, which has become the cornerstone, is a quote from Psalm 118, verse 22. In other words, Peter is preaching the gospel from Psalm 118. You need to understand that. They had rejected Jesus. He was, he was the, the stone that was rejected, and yet he's the cornerstone of the church. And there is no salvation, or there is salvation in no one else, Peter goes on to say, for there is no other name under heaven given to people, and we must be saved by it. That is the name of Jesus. And so that's the central message. You could even say that's the single message of the entire Bible. And it's deliberate that Peter quotes from the Old Testament to say this is the Bible's single message. But I want us to start today with this text from 2 Timothy chapter 3. And as we get ready to read it, I need to remind you that this is almost certainly Paul's last epistle, the last letter he would write. He was in jail with a death sentence from Emperor Nero coming down on him, and he was ready to be with his Lord. Now, today's text is from chapter 3, but obviously chapter 3 comes just before chapter 4. And if you go on and read in chapter 4, you find Paul confessing that his life is being poured out like a drink offering and that the time of his departure is very close. That's in chapter 4, verse 6. So perhaps this adds a little urgency to our text as we consider that these are the last words of this godly apostle. So starting in chapter 3 now and reading from verse 10, Paul writes to Timothy, And remember, this is very personal for Paul. He's writing to to Timothy. Uh, That's an individual, of course, but also a man with whom Paul has had a very close association for at least a couple of decades. And so Paul says to Timothy, but you have followed my teaching, conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, and endurance, along with the persecutions and sufferings that came to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra. These were Timothy's Uh, This Lystra was Timothy's hometown. This was Timothy's area, and he observed Paul in his ministry there. What persecutions I endured, yet the Lord rescued me from them all. In fact, all those who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. 
Let me just say that louder. We're not to seek persecution. We're not to, in some way, gain extra glory or think we're gaining extra glory by being persecuted, but we must understand that if we are living a godly life, there will be an element of persecution somewhere. And you'll probably be surprised at where you find this element of persecution. Jesus talks about it coming from our own households. That's why he says you have to learn to just sort of ignore. Now, he actually uses the word hate. Uh, but you have to learn to ignore your parents or your spouse or your children because they're going to be in disagreement with you. You're going to feel a bit of persecution from someone possibly right in your own home. It's not a guarantee, but we need to not be surprised when it comes from there or from the community or wherever it may be. So I say to you again, as he puts it here, all those who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Evil people and imposters will become worse deceiving and being deceived. But, and I, I love this but as Paul continues to speak to his, his son in the ministry, verse 14, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed. I actually think that maybe in this paragraph, the word continue is possibly the key word in the entire paragraph. Continue in what you have learned and firmly believed. You know those who taught you, and you know that from childhood you have known the sacred scriptures, which are able to give you wisdom for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. I say again, and one of the reasons I emphasize this history book is because heritage counts. As Paul says goodbye to Timothy, Timothy, he's conscious that his life and his ministry are ending and that Timothy and others will have to take over his kingdom responsibilities and carry them forward. And so notice then how Paul's mind works. As he contemplates all these things, how does his mind, his godly, sanctified mind, how does it work? Well, first of all, he remembers the long association that he had, that he had been a mentor to Timothy, and that Timothy had been like a son to him, so that Paul could say with confidence that Timothy had observed some outstanding characteristics in his life. That is to say that Paul, as he observed Paul, Timothy had seen and observed sound biblical teaching and Christ-like conduct and, and a kingdom focus and purpose for Paul's life, never-ending faith, extraordinary patience, deep love, and unending endurance. And, and, and as I was contemplating this in preparation for today, I found myself praying, God, grant that every Christian should be mentored by such a man or by such a woman, that every Christian should have the privilege of, of observing close hand and close up someone who lived a, lives the Christian life like Paul did. And then Paul reminds Timothy that his faith and patience and endurance had been more than theoretical. That is to say, these attributes were displayed in a time of extraordinary persecution. And all of it taking place in Timothy's district of Derby and Lystra. And you can read about this, if you'd like, back in Acts chapter 14 on your own. Now, Paul did not drag up these horrible moments in his life in order to complain. Quite the opposite. He used them as an opportunity to say, the Lord rescued me from them all. 
I think there are two contrasting statements in this, in this paragraph that we're using as our text this morning, two contrasting statements that ought to just jump off the page. The first one is, all those who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And the second one is, the Lord rescued me from them all. And so we can always put those together for our own lives. We can anticipate. If we learn to enter into Paul's example and, and see it working out in our own lives, we can anticipate that if we stand for Jesus, we're going to be persecuted for that stand. Somewhere we'll be persecuted for that stand. But we can also say with confidence, as the Apostle Paul says about his own life, looking back over it, he says, the Lord rescued me. The Lord will rescue me from everything that comes against me. Have you ever wondered how evil always fails? Have you ever asked yourself, why is it that evil doesn't seem to always triumph? Because remember, evil stops at nothing. Evil has no scruples. Evil have, has no principles. Evil doesn't mind to lie. Evil doesn't mind to threaten. Evil doesn't mind to kill. Evil doesn't mind to go what, to whatever length it thinks it can get away with in order to achieve whatever it wants. Evil is evil, and yet it always fails. How is it that evil always fails? Because evil is not of God. Evil is a, a parody of godliness at the, at, at, the, at the best, and in many cases a, a direct contradiction of godliness, and there is a God in heaven, and he always brings, uh, puts a limit around what evil can accomplish and what evil can do. And when God gets ready, he always rescues his people. The Lord rescued me from them all. This is both the burden, that is the persecution, and the triumph, the rescue, of the Christian life. It's never easy to be a Christian. And as you know, the Christian life is getting increasingly difficult for Canadians. And I'm not prophesying something. I'm talking about the present-day reality. I don't have to emphasize this too much, but just to mention two things quickly. In Alberta, the present government is attempting to shut down Christian schools. And in another case in Alberta, a Christian school has been told not to read or teach uh, or not to teach or even read certain passages from the Bible because they've been deemed offensive to the tender ears of unbelievers. School up near Edmonton. In Ontario, they're actively taking away parents' rights to raise children according to their own convictions. And there's a solid legal threat now that if you don't raise the children the way we deem you ought to raise them, we can take them away from you. That's going on in Ontario. And there's a man named Steve Trelakis or Tolukas who's been fighting for seven years to gain the right to be notified before the public school teaches his children about moral issues and abortion, the occult, cultural relativism. He wants to be notified, and the school has said, no, we're not going to do it, so he took the school board to court. Now he is being uh, resisted by the combined might of the school board and the Teachers Union of Ontario, which is another many millions of dollars and more lawyers. And finally, in recent months, the province of Ontario, the provincial government, has come in against this man and against his desire simply to be notified before the school begins to teach on these subjects that might, that might be uh, uh, misrepresenting the truth in, in, from his Christian perspective. And so I'm telling you, we're living in a time of persecution. But I want you to listen carefully to what, what I need to say next. From a New Testament perspective, this is not surprising. Rather, it's to be expected so I say it again, in the New Testament, persecution is the expected burden of the Christian life. However, if we live, if we believe and live boldly as Paul did, then we will triumph in this declaration, the Lord rescued me from them all. 
God brings an end to evil. He always does. There is a God in heaven, and we live in the confidence that he always limits what evil can accomplish, and in the end, his people triumph now and forever. Now, I want to take this passage then as Paul is reminding Timothy about the relationship they've had for these last 20 years, and I want to draw out two principles, if I may. And the first one is this. The more we enter into Paul's life, the more we can understand and believe for ourselves that the Lord will rescue all his children from every form of persecution. And we have to enter into Paul's life in order for us to begin to really understand that. But the more we enter in, the more we can believe that if God could do it for Paul, he can do it for all his children, including me. And you would need to put your own personal pronoun there, including me. You need to say that to yourself. But I think there's a larger principle. The second one is, the more we enter into the lives of all the Christian heroes, the more we will be strengthened to stand for Jesus through every form of persecution. That's why I've been uh, recommending these history books and so forth. By knowing what God has done for others, we can also know that one way or another, our Savior and Lord, that is Jesus the Messiah, will, will, will deliver us from every form of persecution. And he will always do it in a way that brings him the most glory and ultimately brings us the greatest reward. This is part of what Jesus meant when he told us, I think, not to lay up for ourselves treasures on earth, but to make sure that we're laying up our treasures in heaven, willing to suffer for the Lord now that we would reign with him in the days to come. Now, I keep talking about entering into the life of Paul and entering into the life of the great saints and the great heroes of the faith, whether they're in history or in the Bible. And I, I hope you're thinking ahead as I speak about these matters, and I hope you're asking, well, how do I do that? That is, how do I enter into their lives? Well, here's how Paul, I think, speaks to this situation or this question. By using himself and Timothy's family, that is, people that Timothy knew well, Timothy knew Paul well. Timothy knew his family well, his mother and his grandmother and so forth. By using these people, Paul is indicating that we have to enter into the lives of Christian heroes or Christian saints. And I'm going to use several words. You'll see them on the screen. First, knowledgeably. That is to say, we have to know who they are and how they live. How can we gain strength from, just to use an example that's relevant for this year, how can we gain strength from the life of Martin Luther, as one example, and many of the other reformers, some of whom were uh, burned at the stake for their faith, and others who, who narrowly escaped, as Luther did, and so forth. How can we gain strength from their lives unless we know something about their lives? When was the last time you deliberately sought out a biography of a great Christian worker, Christian man, Christian woman, missionary or, or saint? Uh, Amy Carmichael, I think you were talking about just a moment ago, Ken, and um, I don't know where he sat down, but whatever. But Amy Carmichael in India and, and other great Christians, uh, missionaries, and so forth. When's the last time you deliberately sought out a biography and read it in order to knowledgeably enter into their life of discipline, their life of devotion, their life of, of, uh, of complete commitment to all that Christ had called them to do? So in order to enter into the life of a great saint or hero, we have to do so knowledgeably. That is, we also have to do so lovingly. That is, we have to be the kind of person who will appreciate the sacrifices that they've made and the discipline they've displayed. That is to say, we have to be in sympathy with, what they, with who they are and what they were attempting to accomplish. This is exactly what Jesus had in mind when he talked about being careful not to cast our pearls before swine because he said, I'm hearing a 
echo there. Because he said, you know, these swine, they don't appreciate what you're offering them at all. And, and, and just like swine who are only looking for something to eat, now what's more beautiful than a pearl? What's, you know, nothing. There's nothing is more beautiful than, than a pearl. And yet, even if you had a sack full of perfect pearls and you dumped them out before a, a pig, he'd take one sniff, if that, and the moment he realized it wasn't something he could eat, he would just trample on it in the mud and the muck of a pig pen. You see what I mean? So we have to be really careful that we ourselves are not swine. That is, we need to enter lovingly into the reading of the biographies of the Christian heroes that we find in the Bible, the biographies of the Christian heroes that we find in history books, such as the one I'm recommending, or many other biographies and books besides, or even just articles on the Internet or wherever you may want to find them. So we have to enter in knowledgeably, lovingly. We have to enter into their lives spiritually. That is to say, we need to have the same Holy Spirit guiding us, calling us, at work in us, transforming us if we're going to enter into their lives, and we need to enter into their lives experientially. That is to say, we have to learn to somehow imitate their actions. That is, if we want to know something about both the, the sheer terror that Martin Luther felt as he stood before the weight of the entire European world at the Diet of Worms, I guess, in English, Worms or something, uh, Worms, I'm not sure how to say it in German, but, but you know, the, as he stood there before the emperor and the pope's representatives, and he said, here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. The only way we can enter into that experience is to do something similar, to take a stand for Jesus somewhere. A, even a little minor thing. Just, just yesterday, and I, I, I hesitate to tell, you, to tell you this story because it, it sounds self-glorifying, and I, I promise you I don't feel that way at all. But as I was talking with someone, a, a, a stranger whom I just had met, uh, this person started talking about certain areas of politics, and he happened at first to talk about some things that I completely and perfectly agreed with. And then he tried to apply a passage of Scripture to what he was saying, but he completely misapplied it. And I said, I'm sorry, you may believe that's true, but that's not what the Bible teaches. And, uh, and I tried to explain the truth, and, and I'm telling you that to simply say this. At that moment, I was forced to either let him go on in his errors or correct him. In some ways, a perfect stranger, a man probably at least 10 years older than me, which means he was really, uh, you know, how should we say it, filled with the dignity of age, let's put it that way, and, um, and, and, and a man I wanted to respect and so forth, but I had to contradict him. I had to correct him. And I, I promise you, it was nothing like the experience of Luther at the Diet of Worms. It was not. I did not go back to my room and collapse as, as Luther did afterward. But, um, but, but at the same time, I felt my heart rate increase. I felt my skin warm. It was a, a, an awkward moment to have to contradict my senior and to say, no, that's simply not acceptable. In fact, what he said was blasphemous, and I won't even go further in, than that. But just as it was wrong, it was completely wrong, and I had to correct him. And I'm saying, in that moment, I entered experientially just a little bit just a tiny little bit, entered experientially into Luther's experience as he stood before the crowned heads of Europe. Do you see the connection that I'm trying to make here this morning? If you want to know something about the passion that Jesus has for lost souls, 
just try one time to tell somebody about Jesus, a lost person about Jesus, and watch what happens. Yeah, there'll be some nervousness. There'll be some fear involved. But as you begin to tell them, you know what's going to happen? Your heart's going to warm. Your heart's going to expand. You're going to see things about the glory of the gospel you never saw before. You're going to get excited. You're going to enter into the passion of our Lord as he hung on the cross. Do you, get, do, you, do, you gain, do you gain understanding of what I'm saying? We have to enter in experientially at least a little bit if we're really going to enter into the lives of the saints. And for those godly heroes whom we only know through Scripture or biography, now remember, Timothy had all the advantage of us over us when it comes to, to Paul because Timothy, <laughs> you know where Timothy was. He had observed Paul for a long time. He lived with Paul. He, he ministered alongside Paul. He traveled with Paul. He saw some of the things that Paul went through and experienced them firsthand himself. But for those godly heroes whom we only know through Scripture or biography, and that's a lot of them, we only know Paul through Scripture, we must enter into their lives imaginatively. That is, with the Holy Spirit's help, we need to think deeply enough about their situation that we can put ourselves mentally at least, and then further emotionally and spiritually and so forth, put ourselves into their shoes. Now, this is exactly what Paul is teaching Timothy. First, he reminds Timothy of the Christian heroes found in his own family, his mother and his grandmother. He's already mentioned them by name back in chapter 1 of this letter. Lois and Eunice, he, he speaks of them, and now he refers to them again as those who taught you in verse 14. And about them, he says to Timothy, and remember, I'm saying this is the key word in this whole paragraph, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed. And of course, Paul was talking about those things that Timothy had learned from, from Paul himself, as well as from his mother and his grandmother. Now, why is it important for, uh, to, why is it important, I should say, to God that we surround our, ourselves with faith heroes? I'll tell you why. God intends for us to see what a godly life looks like in real time, shall we say, in real life. Timothy knew that Paul was no plastic saint. He knew, he had seen Paul wrestle in prayer for the souls of men and then speak boldly to them in the synagogues and in the marketplaces. He had also seen Paul bleed from wounds of every kind, his skin cut by the lash as he was beaten several times in his ministry. And not only that, his body bruised by the stocks as they slammed his legs and his arms and maybe even his neck and head into those stocks and slammed the boards down and locked them into place. He had seen Paul bruised from the stocks and he had even seen him stoned and left for dead. But Timothy also knew that being stoned and left for dead was not the end of the story in Paul's life. Timothy had seen Paul rise from the dead in a manner of speaking and then get up and forgive those who had hurt him. Remember, Paul wasn't kidding when he reminded Timothy, the Lord delivered, them, delivered me from them all. All forms of persecution, including stoning and being left for dead, the Lord delivered me from them all, and he'll deliver you from them all. From Paul, as well as his own female relatives then, Timothy had seen love in action, Timothy had seen faith in action, patience and endurance in action. Dear friends, there's a reason why God surrounds us with godly people. They are the teachers that God has assigned to us, and we are expected to learn from them. So I say again, to succeed in the Christian life, we need to continue with what we've received from these godly men and women who have come before us and not just our own parents, and not just our own pastors and teachers and, and, and mentors of our time, 
not just from Paul, but from all of them, from all the heroes of the Bible, starting with Abel at the very beginning of the Old Testament and going all the way through, well, to use Jesus' concluding list, the blood of Zechariah the prophet. But it doesn't matter. To continue right on through with John and all the others who live for God right up to the very end of the New Testament and then all the heroes of the faith in these last 2,000 years. I'm just going to have to give you the principle of what follows, and then I'm just going to have to quit right there. We're out of time. More than anything else, in my view, no, in the Bible's view, we need to have the same view of God's word that these faith heroes always had. Do you see the text there? As he says in verse 15, you know that from childhood you have known the sacred scriptures which are able to give you wisdom for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. In saying goodbye to Timothy, Paul reminds him then of three facts that together will serve as the foundation for a lifetime of victorious Christian living. And the first fact is this. Timothy has had a lifelong knowledge of the sacred scriptures. I can just stop right there. How's it with you? How's your knowledge of the sacred scriptures? I'm not going to do it today, but I've heard of pastors actually buying a cheap uh, a Walmart version of the Bible, paperback version of the Bible, and coming in uh, before the congregation and saying, okay, how many of you have read the book of Genesis in the last year? Hands up. And maybe one or two, yeah, no, I'm just kidding now, but, but you know, one or two people put their hands up, and I saw a few hands, and I'm grateful for that. But most of us could not, could not honestly put our hands up. And so the pastor just selects the pages that include the book of Genesis and tears them right out of the book and says, well, apparently you don't need that, throws it in a trash can. How many of you have read the book of Exodus in the last year? And, you know, a few hands, but not many. Okay, most of you don't need that, and he tears that out of the Bible and throws that in the trash can. And right on through until finally, by the time he gets to Revelation, which always ends up remaining, I don't know why exactly, but, uh, but, uh, but by the time he gets through, he's got a little bit of the Gospels, he's got a few pages from some of Paul's epistles, some of the favorite pages, Romans 8 and 1 Corinthians 13, and, and some of the Psalms, but most of that Bible, that, that binder, is, is empty now because the people have not been filling their hearts. And so remember what he says here from childhood, you've known the sacred scriptures which are able to give you wisdom for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. And so the first thing is to know the Bible. The second thing is that it's the scriptures, notice what Paul says, that are able to give you wisdom for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And thirdly, and this is fascinating to me, those scriptures to which Paul refers are collectively the Old Testament. Why do we say that? Because he's referring to Timothy's childhood. And when Timothy was a child, the New Testament had yet to be written. And so he's saying it's the Old Testament that fills our hearts with the knowledge that we need in order to believe in Jesus. Now, the rest of the message, the notes that you have before you, if you took some of those notes from the back, all has a, is an attempt to defend this idea that you can get all the gospel you need out of the Old, out of the Old Testament uh, I'm not suggesting we don't need the New Testament, but that you can get all the gospel you need out of the Old Testament and that it will keep you strong in your service for the Lord. But I, I don't have time to do that. What I think I will do, though, is bring it to a conclusion by saying it's no exaggeration to say that God was thinking of the gospel before he did anything at all, including the creation of the heavens and the earth. 
And so the entire history of the Old Testament, and by that I mean the history of the world, has been shaped and organized by the God who from the beginning had planned a world in which his son would gather for himself a bride made up of the men and women who are redeemed by his own precious blood. And this is a truth that we simply cannot know without the Old Testament. That is, we can't know that from before creation and all through the beginning history of the world, from before the flood, during the flood, after the flood, right down through the period, all of history, right down to the birth of Christ, that God was preparing the world for his son to come and redeem his people from their sins. We cannot know this without the, the Old Testament. At least we can't know the fullness of it without the Old Testament. The world-encompassing nature of the gospel of God and, and Christ without the Old Testament. And so I just need us to understand then that if all of history is about the gospel, then we are out of step if our lives are not also focused on the gospel. Have you heard how our progressive friends like to talk about the world is unfolding, the universe is unfolding exactly as it should, and you know we're progressives because we're, we're on the cutting edge of history, we're going where history is taking us. They are mistaken. Some of them are lying and some are merely mistaken because we understand that history is all about the gospel. We understand that the Lord is able to deliver his people out of every form of persecution and that, that in the end the righteous will shine like the sun. And as we move toward taking the Lord's Supper together, we understand that as Jesus has given his all in order to make all of this possible, then he's calling us through the supper to give our all for him. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Hawkwood Baptist Church in Calgary, Alberta. We want to be a blessing to our community. So please contact us with any questions or prayer requests that you have by calling the church at 403-239-6200 or through our website at www.hawkwood.ca. You can find us on Facebook by searching for Hawkwood Baptist Church. We are on Twitter at Hawkwood Baptist. The sermon podcast can be found on iTunes and SoundCloud by searching for Hawkwood Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. May God bless you this week.